Welcome to the Top Order Podcast, episode 34. The England-Pakistan series has just concluded in a little bit of a damp squib with plenty of rain around at the Aegeus Bowl in Southampton, so we'll talk about that series there. In This Week in Cricket, we talk about the retirement of Mahendra Singh Dhoni. We talk World Test Championship update with Raj. A CPL update, how are the Knight Riders getting on and the Zooks and the Warriors and all of our picks for the comp. And the New Zealand home summer is also taking shape. Looks like a packed white ball schedule for both men and women. All coming up on the Top Order podcast after the swish. So let's start this week in cricket with Raj. You want to talk World Test Championship, mate? Yep, just uh, following on, following the World Test Championship that we um, have all been paying a lot of attention to. So we've got uh, India, Australia, England at the top uh, with 360, 296 and 292 points respectively. Then we've got another grouping of Pakistan and New Zealand, fourth and fifth with 180 points and 166 points respectively. And then you've got a, a big drop to um, 80 points, which is Sri Lanka and um, the West Indies, South Africa, Bangladesh are all trailing behind there. <clears throat> but important to note that uh, those four teams at the bottom, Sri Lanka, West Indies, South Africa and Bangladesh, have only played two series out of their six uh, versus England, who England, India, Pakistan, who have all played four series so far. Uh, the main talking points for me are, you know, do we think that those top teams, really the top three, can be chased down? And also I want to get your guys' opinion on the number of matches that they're actually playing. Over to you. Yeah, look, for me, I think the fact that after you'd named the top three sides, and I wouldn't have actually been 100% clear on the order of those other than that India were at the top, I wouldn't have been able to confidently name the top five. I'd, I'd have had more chance of picking the first five lotto numbers out tonight, I think, to be honest. <laughs> so that that would be my first point. Um, I know offline you guys were goading me a little bit that England have played, I think, 15 games in this Test Championship and someone like Bangladesh have only had a couple or three games and that that's going to cause a factor. The, the reality is, I think, you know, an Ashes series is still only worth the same amount of points as a two-Test series somewhere else in the world. So those components will even themselves up. But like you say, the big thing for me is just whether or not this holds any interest as three teams seem to be running away with it at the top of the top of the ladder. How is this going to maintain the public's interest? Um, and I guess the other component is from a COVID perspective. Um, there's going to be series cancelled, moved around, postponed. Are they going to need to stick a pin in it anyway and say, well, we're not going to be able to hold the final at Lords when we said... Um, this has, you know, been had to be aborted for for those reasons anyway. Yeah, there's still plenty of opportunity for those bottom four sides though to to climb up that ladder. So to take South Africa as an example, they've got 480 points still on offer with series at home against Sri Lanka, who you would expect them to beat quite handsomely, and also Australia, who they did very well against the last time Australia toured South Africa. So with 280 points points on offer there winning your home test matches becomes vitally important, particularly those ones in a two-test series where if you win two tests at home, you get two, uh, you get 120 points. So each one of those home tests were 60 points. So there's massive incentive for those sides at the bottom to win their home test matches. I think New Zealand's probably the best place to be able to climb that ladder with test series against West Indies and Pakistan at home this summer, 
and then a test series against Bangladesh away, which you would expect them to do quite well in. So there's 360 points available to them, you know, on offer to be able to, to close the gap on England, Australia and India. But you're right, those three teams are looking in the box seat at the moment. But I wouldn't be surprised if at least New Zealand, if not South Africa, start to close that gap a little before we see the final at Lords. Yeah, well, I think that's the thing we're going to have to live with, really, isn't it? That this this round, especially because of COVID and because of all the other circumstances that they're just sort of going through and figuring it all out, that it's not going to be perfect. That I guess, you know, Baldy touched on it offline, that the fact that we're all talking about it and, um, you know, well, you know, the fact that we're talking about it a little bit more than, than we might have been otherwise uh, is, is good for test cricket, hopefully. Um, I mean, you touched on New Zealand there. That, that was going to be my, my next point, really, that New Zealand's summer is starting to, to take shape. Uh, we've got tours by the West Indies, Pakistan, Australia and Bangladesh for the men. Uh, and then New Zealand's women's team, the White Ferns, are about to head over to Australia and then have ODIs and T20s back in New Zealand against Australia and England, which is really good because uh, it's a lot of... I mean, that Women's World Cup was obviously a big focus for New Zealand. It was going to provide a, a lot of coverage for the women's game, but uh, with those Aussie one days that there are, or T20s, I think it is about that they're about to play. And then the WBBL, which a number of Kiwi women are in. And then those ODIs and tri-series, hopefully we'll, we'll sort of get quite a bit of cricket for the, the women all the way through the summer, which would be, it'd be really good. Um, and then, yeah, those men's tours, as you touched on, the big thing really is that apart from those two tests against West Indies and two against Pakistan, the rest of it all just looks like T20s with, with only three ODIs against Bangladesh in there. So it's going to be a pretty heavy diet of, of T20 cricket for New Zealand, but uh, obviously that's it's better than nothing at the moment and um, you know we can't really be too picky. I know we're all fans of, of ODI cricket here on the podcast, but do you think the average Joe Public in New Zealand would much rather have a diet of T20 cricket this summer and, and a smattering of ODIs or the other way around? Uh, over to you guys. I mean, I know what I want. I'd prefer, much prefer the ODI game personally, but um, yeah, p- possibly the casual fan wants wants T20s and maybe it's better for them to sell around the world. Well, I guess the other question for that is, or the other question to answer there is, are we going to have crowds and what are the crowds going to look like? Um, I think I think we will, but you never know what will happen down the road. Uh, I, to answer your question, Bordy, I reckon that the public are after the T20s. And I think that the administration is probably after the T20s as well. Um, but, yeah, I'd love to see more ODI cricket and obviously the test, personally. Yeah, I just wonder whether it's a combination of things. You've got, obviously, the situation with the teams needing to travel, and it's a long way to New Zealand anyway to be and here and potentially be in that kind of bubble. I don't know how they're going to actually manage that situation with isolation and things like that. So you know, that's going to be a factor. And then the, the TV thing is probably pretty important as well um, from a global perspective. I've got to admit, though, and I know I'm going to be slightly biased and slightly coloured by the fact that it was two England series, but having these like little concentrated periods where you see a three-test series, bang, 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 it's been really good. I think the momentum that you've got and that, you know, the interest that you've got, obviously this England series, which we'll talk about in a minute against Pakistan is kind of, petered into a little bit of a damp script with the weather at the Aegeus Bowl, but certainly that, you know, the summer has had that concentrated kind of edge to it, which I think has been really, really good and be interesting to see how the 
yeah, the ODIs and the, the T20s go now um, with the Australians. I think actually landed today in the UK by the looks of things. I've seen some pictures of, you know, Adam Zampa making a cup of coffee for Mitchell Stark and, you know, um, overlooking a damp county ground somewhere. <laughs> yeah, was, I guess well, my only my only argument to that, uh, Binksy, would be I don't think that we could have seen Jofra Archer play six tests, if you know what I mean, this summer mm-hmm. in that condensed thing. Um that that's my only criticism of it, and and you know it's we have to decide if that's the world we live in now, or um or we're going to try to sort out something with the scheduling. So Baldy, we've gone from the Test Championship to arguably the most important competition in world cricket, the Caribbean Premier League. So give us an update on how all of our teams are going and where we're heading towards the finals. Yeah, so the countdown to September the tenth is on. Twelve matches out of thirty in the round robin stages of the Caribbean Premier League. The Trinbago Knight Riders really sitting pretty at 3-0 and and Raj is looking very good to feature in that final on September the 10th. But Stuart's Guyana Amazon Warriors aren't placed too badly at 2-3, and three, picking up a win today against Adams Jamaica Talawas who are sitting at 2-3. Oh, loss. That was, that was the, the crucial loss today uh, well, against those Talawas. Never in doubt for my boys. A, lo- a low-scoring game today between the Talawas and the Guyana Amazon Warriors. So you can forgive me for confusing the winner and the loser. But my St. Kitts and Nevis Patriots are on the board. Nick Kelly featuring for the first time this Caribbean Premier League for the St. Kitts and Nevis Patriots. And we picked up a win today against fellow stellar dwellers, the Barbados Trident. So that puts us both on one and three and chasing down the St. Lucia Zooks and the Trinbado Knight Riders who are standing at the top of the table on six points. So the Knight Riders only played three games, though, three and oh and they're looking pretty good to host the final or be in the final on September the 10th. Um, and it's a one versus four, two versus three situation in the semifinals on September the 8th. You, you can see that in New Zealand uh, on September the 9th, our time, and September the 11th for the final. And just on that Kiwi link, plenty of Kiwis doing well in the tournament. I see Glenn Phillips today help get my boys across the line with a quick fire 20-odd at the top of the order with... Russell coming in at seven, which is pretty handy to have a, a guy at, at that level um, coming in at yeah seven to finish things off again with a, a rapid twenty odd. Yeah, and Coot, Scott Kugelines, the highest wicket taker. Colin and Rose had a couple of handy knocks. He's leading the the most fours chart, and yeah, Glenn Phillips, as you mentioned, 128. He's third in the the batting chart. So yeah, Kiwis holding their own for sure. And and um, you know, I do have to give a mention. Uh, as much as it was a loss today for for the Amazon Warriors, uh, we did all get treated to a, a lovely Imran Tahir celebration. So that's kind of uh, the main the main thing we wanted to tick off. Oh dear. Okay. <laughs> Moving swiftly on, Lippy. Anything else you want to cover off about that New Zealand home summer, or, or just happy to be seeing some cricket on their shores? I think that's the main thing. That that it's great that they're really banking on getting a lot of cricket in, and um, yeah, whether you know, whether it all actually happens. And, and I guess, you know, three or four weeks ago, we were probably a lot more confident now, uh, you know, the situation in New Zealand, whether we do have crowds or, or what crowds might look like in New Zealand is a, a little bit more in question. But fingers crossed we've got that all sorted by November and uh, everything's back to our new normal, as they say. Binksy, over to you. Yeah, so look, as a... As a keeper, I think it'd be remiss not to mention MS Dhoni announcing his retirement. Um, no spoiler 
um, alert, but we've got Mike Hussey coming on the podcast as well, who talks in glowing terms about how good a man manager and motivator he was. But um, yeah, look, a, a fantastic career. And I think the biggest thing for me as a as a keeper is looking at him aesthetically. And I know Raj has done the gloves on a, a number of occasions as well. Um, <laughs> he doesn't look a stellar keeper like he just you know he goes about his business in a in a way that's his, his own particularly the fact that he just doesn't give at all with his hands because he wants to get the bales off so quickly but I'm just going to say I think really underrated actually how good a keeper he was throughout his career and I think yeah got a bit of criticism for his batting towards the end in terms of strike rates and and things like that but you cannot argue with what he's given to Indian cricket and um, the superstar status that he's had to do it with as well. Yeah, I think you're 100% right, Binksy, with the um, with the wicketkeeping. I'm glad you've compared him to me with the gloves. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that. I think but if you listen right. back, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know he, he wasn't he wasn't uh, you know as aesthetically pleasing as the others, which you mentioned, but. He got the job done, caught the ball, took the bells off if they needed to be done. And, of course, he was an incredible batting talent. Um, Catching the yeah, ball think, more, more than can be said for a few people that we're about to talk to soon. Talk about soon. Yes, that's my, that's my <laughs> other. That's, that's where I was going with it. But, no, he'll be, a, he'll be a massive loss for Indian cricket. And it's, it's more around his man management and the way he was able to bring, bring sort of massive, uh, massive personalities uh, together. So he had a real talent for that. Yeah, and I saw Shane Warne calling him out on Instagram as well, saying come and play for the London Spirit in the 100 next year. So I'll tell you what, that would put some bums on seats if uh, the UK gets its COVID situation in any shape by next year. Absolutely. And we should point out for the listeners as well that he's retiring from international cricket, so we can expect to see him in domestic T20 tournaments for years to come, I'm sure. Yeah, we're about to see him in the IPL, aren't we? So, yeah, we'll still get to, to see him, which is great. Um, but yeah, won't be pulling on an Indian jersey anytime soon. Well, here's hoping we get him in a, a Super Smash franchise at some point. But look, that wraps up this week in cricket for now. We'll be back after this wish where we talk all things England, Pakistan at the conclusion of that test series that's just finished up at the Aegeus Bowl in Hampshire. Back soon. Welcome back to the Top Order podcast. Well, we're going to kick into some chat around the England-Pakistan series that's just finished third test at the Aegeus Bowl in Hampshire. I don't think we can start anywhere else but with Jimmy Anderson, can we, guys? Oh, and I think the right person to be pouring one out for Jimmy is probably you, isn't it? So I think we should just let you let you tell us all about Jimmy and, and his efforts. Yeah, well, look, we were in a bit of debate about this on our Top Order podcast Facebook page last night as to whether or not Jimmy Anderson makes the Mount Rushmore of seamers all time. And look, we're not going to go into that now because we probably don't have enough time for Baldy to slip on the zinc and the headband and do his Dennis Lilly impression um, and for you guys to do the same with paddles as well. But look, I think let, let's make this about Jimmy Anderson. 600 test wickets narrowly failed to get to 600 quicker than anyone else who's got to that milestone in test cricket if we could have caught our catches he'd have absolutely smashed that record as well a declining average so he's actually getting better 
with age. And look, the particularly the, the thing is that he's finding ways to get wickets, not only in England where his record is superb, but has also continued to want to keep improving. And when he's had the opportunity or the selectors have been indicating that they might want to leave him out for a series in India or Sri Lanka or Bangladesh, he's been wanting to get on that plane and go and improve his craft in, in conditions where, you know, he's not necessarily going to be super effective from a traditional perspective, other than with that new Kookaburra rock on the road. Um, and yeah, look, series stats, especially when you take into account the amount of chances that have been missed off him and other bowlers, to be fair, the slip cord had the Teflon symbols on for the whole summer, really, um, is just phenomenal. So I just, I think the people that beat him up around, well, he's played that many games. That's actually testament to how great he is as well. As a seamer, to be playing close to the age of 40, like Richard Hadley did as well, 150-odd tests in and 600 polls. Surely you've got to give the credit for that rather than say, well, he's only got there because he's played that many tests. There's a lot of test bowlers that would have loved the ability to get onto the park as much as someone like Jimmy Anderson um, and not always the case with the rigours that that puts on your body. So that's my Jimmy rant over. He also comes across as a really nice guy. He does the Tail Enders podcast, uh, the sister podcast of this show from the title you'll, you'll note. Um, and look, the he's similar following. similar following Very well. similar following, yes. Um, just missing uh, 600 wickets, the lead singer of an international rock band and the radio DJ of the most successful radio show in the country that it's produced in. But other than that, we're pretty close. Um, but look, he comes across really well on that and just loves his loves his cricket. Um, and, and, you know, I, I just can't, can't comprehend not at least having him in that conversation of, of one of the greats of all time. Well, that, that's oh, the, probably the, the biggest thing for me is that there was so much chat after that first test that he wasn't, you know, that it, it, maybe it's time for Jimmy. Oh, the, you know, we, he should probably retire and all this stuff. And it's just nonsense that he was bowling, you know, solid pace throughout this whole series. He might have bowled one bad spell in that first test and kind of, I don't know, everyone just kind of flipped out, didn't they? Yeah, well, you know, it's that age-old adage, isn't it? They're fish and chip wrappers now. Mm. But that, that's the the massive thing about Jimmy Anderson. Well, my, my feelings about him anyway is just his competitive spirit. Like, people saying that about him, like you said, uh, Stu, that people were saying that, even though it's fish and chip wrapper, wrapping paper, that that, um, that would have spurred him on. And you could see in the second and third test how well he bowled. I think I think that his competitive spirit is what's got him through. There was that great story about uh, how he bowled in, in, in South Africa before he broke his rib. I don't know if you guys saw that on Crick Info this week about how he, yeah. he bowled yeah. himself into the ground, basically breaking a rib in order to do it. Yeah, and it's the same with Stuart Broad as well. They've both copped some criticism and both answered it in the best way possible, which is, you know, a really good series for, for both of them. Yeah, you guys are 100% right. Jimmy Anderson playing 156 test matches. He's bowled the most balls now in test match cricket of, of any seamer. He's a fantastic bowler. And if this podcast has taught me anything, it's to take a wider perspective on cricket. And I'm just in awe of the skill and of the longevity and the fitness of Jimmy Anderson to get himself on the park for 156 test matches. That is an amazing feat and one that will be unlikely, I think, to be bettered by anyone other than perhaps Stuart Broad, who's kind of chasing him down 500 wickets and a, and a similar amount of test matches. So 
Hats off to Jimmy Anderson and to Stuart Broad, who brought up an impressive milestone of 500 wickets in this test series, having been left out of that first test. And you guys are right, that uh, criticism of both of those players and, and the dropping of Stuart Broad for that first test has certainly, certainly fired them up, and we've seen the best of them this English summer. Baldy, a quick question for you, and there's obviously some water to go under the bridge before Brisbane for that Ashes test match in what around about 18 months' time now, I think. Um, but if you were going to look at this now and, and just say that, you know, a trajectory happens where we're not talking about injuries and we're not talking about form with Jimmy Anderson, he continues on the level of being that performer. As an Aussie, are you worried if he's in that first test attack or are you, you know, you, you know, are you breathing a sigh of relief if he's retired by then? Or are you, are you actually thinking, nah, bring him to Brisbane because we'll cart him all around the place? No, absolutely not. The three people I least likely to, I least want to face or want to be in their England team in that first test in Brisbane are Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad and Jofra Archer. In those Brisbane conditions, they are the three that I would be most concerned about. If England decided to play Sam Curran, Mark Wood and uh, who's the other guy? Wokes. Chris Wokes. Wokes. As, as good as Wokes has been, and Wokes has been fantastic, fantastic for England uh, in home conditions this summer, they're the three that I would rather be in that side. Anderson and Broad in particular, are still lethal and very, very good bowlers. And I would be concerned if they were in that, uh, in that Ashes team come 18 months' time. We want to talk about Pakistan. What's caught our eye with the side that they've brought over for this series? It, they've played some entertaining cricket. Oh, I think you have to start uh, on your, your keeper, don't you? Rizwan, he's been the star for me, I think. he's you know Keeping-wise, has been excellent. He's held them... Uh, held them together with the bat there in, in some tricky situations. Yeah, I, he's been he's been a real standout for me. Yeah, 100%, Stu. He's absolutely the highlight for me as well. In fact, I was writing a very uh, complimentary, flowery piece about Rizwan just as he missed that something off Crawley in the second test. Uh, <laughs> but he's been, he's been really, really tidy with the gloves, kept really, really well to the spinners uh, and to the pace bowlers alike. And it was tricky conditions in England. This summer, let's let's be fair. You know, the the ball has moved around quite a lot after passing the bat, and it hasn't been easy for anyone, let alone a keeper who's not used to those kind of conditions. So, Rizwan, excellent for me for Pakistan. Uh, Mohammad Abbas also a highlight. He was at the batsman all the time, and even though he was bowling 75 miles an hour and didn't look particularly threatening, he was always at the batsman and and made England really work for their runs at the top of the order. Yeah, I, I think that uh, Rizwan deserves a massive pat on the back. And the future actually looks really good. He can keep, but he can also bat. You know, that's um, that's something that I think that Pakistan's really looking forward to. And when we saw that Safraz was sort of not not really part of the team going into this, I think he's he is in the squad, right? But um, yeah, there, there must have been a reason, and he's he's showing everybody why why he can do that in foreign conditions. So well done. Uh, for me, I think the it's more of a negative is the um, the Pakistan bowling attack. We spoke about it. We spoke about it before the series, and uh, we put a lot of a lot of the the onus on on performance on Yasser Shah. And you know, I, I said that Yasser Shah for Pakistan to do well, Yasser Shah needs to perform. And I think he was very unlucky in the first test. But aside from that, I think he was he was quite ineffective. And, and as you could see, and definitely in the third test, when England just got away in that first innings, they just didn't have an answer. Um, I, I'm not sure why why that is. Those those three three um, pace bowlers uh, look like they 
should be taking 600 wickets. You know, they look like those kind of bowlers that that mm. would be taking those wickets. But in Australia, they're ineffective. In in England, they've been largely ineffective. Uh, the first test, the fourth innings, and then obviously in the in the third test and the first innings, they kind of let England just get away with it. And that is something that Pakistan will need to address. Yeah, and I mean, it, you only have to look at the statistics to, to see that borne out. 13 wickets between the three pace bowlers for Pakistan, the same amount as Stuart Broad. Uh, Mohamed Abbas averaged a, a, you know, a workman-like 35, uh, but Shaheen Afridi and Nassim Shah averaged over 50 each with the ball, and your two frontline pace bowlers, particularly those who can, who can bowl with a bit of zip, should be averaging well under 50 in England's condi- English conditions. I mean, the worst of the English bowlers in that series from a pace perspective, is Wokes, and he averaged 27, which is better than all three of them. So a lot of potential there for the Pakistan seamers, but a lot of work to do to realise that potential, you would think. Yeah, I think one of the things with Yasser, who took 11 wickets, uh, a not shabby average of 33 in the series, England put him under pressure, particularly Crawley and Butler. You know, they hit him off his length with that uh, with that sweep. Um, and I, so I think that, you know, that was a key factor in, in sort of... Um, keeping him uh yeah keeping him down a little bit I, I don't think we can underestimate sort of the the level of intensity that got taken out of the series though with the rain and and the stuff around I mean that first test we were we were kind of fizzing after that first test because it was such a a close contest and it, it really shaped up that the series whole series was going to be really exciting and then you get that rain out in the the second test and it sort of just you know, it had such a big impact on the the third test as well. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't. It's it's tricky to know uh, how much of an impact it is, but certainly from a a fan's perspective, it, it took a lot of the fizz out of it for me. Yeah, you it's sort of a bit of a shame. Got though, right? And and England made the best of those conditions. They performed the best in the, in those conditions, and Pakistan really let themselves down there a little bit by having a lack of intensity at times. Yeah, I 100% agree uh, with both of you, but uh, especially Lippy there around the just the, the wind was taken out of the sails, especially in that second test. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the, obviously the, the light issues, which I think we'll come to shortly. I just had a question actually for, for Stuart or, or uh, Baldy or Binksy, any of you really. <laughs> what do you think about the fields that were being employed for Yasser Shah, especially around the, the sweepers? Um for me, I just thought it it allowed the batsmen just to take the pressure off themselves, just take a single, play off the back foot, which I found uh, interesting. Uh, they just camped on the back foot, England. They loved it, and they just cut him or they hit him straight down the ground or took one into the leg side almost three or four times and over. Mm. I, I yeah, mean, so to- speak, speaking from personal uh, perspective more than anything, it's I hate when... You know, I, I would hate bowling when people can just take an easy single. That's probably the one thing I hated. You'd want to bowl to the same person over and over again. And if you're allowing that opportunity, then that's that's really annoying. Even in a one-day game, you know, I'd hate it if you got hit over the top and immediately the captain would want to put the, you know, mid-on, mid-off back, whatever it is. But it, I think the bowler does have to take some responsibility there as well, you know. It, maybe he feels more comfortable with having those men back. I, I don't know. It's hard to, to say without being him, but he, he would have to take some responsibility and say, look, no, I want to stop that single more than anything. I don't care about boundaries. I want to attack and I want to bowl the same person over and over again. 
I think you've also got to give some credit to the English batsmen as well. They, you know, they did actually manoeuvre the field really well. When Yasser went round the wicket in this, um, in the the, the Crawley innings, Crawley immediately went, right, I'm going to take that reverse sweep option and um, got, you know, people moved where he wanted them. And then he got the hard sweep option in front of square out as well. So, actually really manipulated and manoeuvred the field really well definitely think the you know captain or whoever's making those decisions didn't help but I think you've also got to give some credit to the the game plan of the English batsmen particularly Butler and Corley in that big big partnership but by the same token you do have to start by trying to attack the batsman and get a wicket you can't start as a leg spinner with five on the boundary you can start with with some cover for a bad ball but all he's trying to do, Yasser Shah, is stay on there. He's not actually trying to take wickets in that first three or four overs. And that, and that gives the batsmen a massive advantage because they can, they can settle in, they can start to read the bounce and the flight of the ball. The batsman is as vulnerable to a leg spinner early on in his spell as the leg spinner is to dropping one short. And he might get carded for four, but he's good enough, Yasser Shah, that he should be able to bowl with a reasonably attacking field. And if he gets hit by a bad ball, well, that's, that's life as a leg spinner. You've got to take that. But to give a guy the opportunity to manoeuvre you around without taking any risk is something that I think they probably need to learn a lesson from there as, as captain and bowler. Yeah, hundred percent. And Binksy, I hundred percent agree with you also on the uh, English tactics or batting tactics. They had that reverse sweep. They clearly practiced it for Yasir Shah. And then in that third test, definitely I saw batsmen batting a long way out of their crease to Muhammad Abbas and coming down the wicket him to release that pressure so they, they clearly were employing plans and thinking about how they were going to play each bowler so that's a massive credit to the batsmen and the coaching staff you touched on the the batting there have we has is this the top six for england is this the six that we'll see for the next year or so with you know burns sibley crawley root stokes pope well i think three through six are locked in so i i really really like crawley and i know Lots of people are going to be talking about him now after his 267 in the third test. But even after that first test against the West Indies, you can see that this guy's got something about him. He's got all the shots. He's not afraid to play positively. He turns the strike over. He's a really great foil for Root and Stokes, actually, because he doesn't get bogged down and he can turn the strike over and allow them to play their natural games. Pope had a quiet series at six, but I think he'll bounce back. And you've got Root and Stokes in there that are first-class players. So three through six are locked in for me. I'm not 100% sure about Sibley and Burns. They've had a reasonable summer, but I think I, I just have a concern that there's a lot that can go wrong for them technique-wise. They're really, really disciplined and they're really, really, you know, got great temperament, but I think there's a little bit that can be ironed out or just, just smoothed over in their techniques, and I think they're a little bit vulnerable. Yeah, definitely question marks for that that opening pair. Uh, what I do, I, I would give Burns a bit of, a bit of rope there because of the way he played the Aussies and the Ashes. I think he did a great job uh, there and, and the West Indies series as well. Uh, but you're right, there's question marks around that opening pair. With with Crawley, the main thing that I liked about his innings, his, his, apart from his massive Big Daddy 100, was that he didn't mind playing on the back foot, which is something that they'll need if they go to Australia. Uh, he looked really good. And and the other thing is, doesn't his um, his when, when he's standing you know upright, that bat looks like a miniature bat, doesn't it? One of those ones you sign them. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me a little bit of, of KP in that respect. Um, it has the big wide stance with the bat, you know, in between the legs. And, and yeah, it kind of looks like a, a bit of a matchstick. The interesting thing with Crawley for me is that 
and look, I don't know that this is 100% the case, but he's opened the batting a lot for Kent, and, and apparently that is his preferred position. I kind of agree to a certain extent with you on, on Burns and Sibley. I think, you know, Burns has only really had an okay summer, a couple of 50s against the West Indies, one of them a 90-odd, but, you know, was poor against Pakistan. And I think a lot of moving parts in his technique. It looks like he's fi- fixed that nick off but now looks vulnerable to the LB with the, you know, with, with an Abbas coming into him. Um, so I think he was the stronger opener leading into the series. If you were going to go, who's on the plane in the winter, Sibley's probably flipped that round with his hundred and a couple of fifties. The criticism of his technique, look, I get it, but Steve Smith's technique's a bit weird. Graham Smith's technique was a bit weird. I think you've got to give him the opportunity to take that technique and make it work for himself before we write him off and say that he can't play the bouncing ball in Australia. You know, give him the opportunity to do so. My worry, though, is their strike rates um, in Test match cricket context. Now, you've got Crawley, you've got Root, you've got Stokes that will score at a lick, but you can't afford to be, you know, 33 for none off 20 overs at the Gabba because, you know, you could go bang, 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 and all of a sudden you're 50 for four. So I think that that's the, you know, the big the big worry for me. Pope, I think, is promising. Again, 90-odd against the West Indies, struggled with Yassir. So that's got to be a question going to the subcontinent this winter for us. You know, is he, you know, he going to be able to get his game in order? If his injury is okay as well, because he'd had a shoulder operation on that left shoulder and came off the field in the test match. Um, went for a scan, I believe. So I've not seen the press on that. He's been looking good, but getting out during this summer. And I think that, you know, that's a concern, the James Vince effect, as I would call it. So I really do think that th- there's some question marks in that um, in that, in that that batting lineup. Um, but yeah, with Crawley, Root, if he can get his pre-captaincy form back, and obviously Benjamin Stokes, who can do no wrong, um, I, you know, I, I'm pretty, yeah, pretty comfortable that we should be able to come out the other side of that. How about yeah, just, at seven? How about at seven? Where, I mean, we, uh, you know, we've touched on him so much in this, it's sort of all this chat, and, and there's been a lot talked about him. There's, you know, most of it's been focused on his keeping until these last two tests, when Josh Butler has has proved his worth certainly as a batsman. But can you afford to have a keeper that just can't really keep very well? Boys, you, you know my answer to that. He was amazing with the bat this summer. You know, the amount of pressure he was under to score runs because he'd not got that 100 and he'd, you know, got 30 test matches under his belt. For him to come out and have a decent series against the West Indies and then that 100 against Pakistan, which wasn't a one-day innings. It wasn't a go out and blitz it and, and luckily get to 100. I think his strike rate was around 50 you know, he really grafted for that big, big hundred. Took three great catches, you know, two diving grabs standing back and a really sharp catch stood up to the stumps off Bess, led to the left-hander. But, 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 then drops an absolute goober. And you just don't know whether or not he's going to be able to get that consistency in his wicket-keeping. And I just think... Um, maybe do we see him return as a batter at number six, a specialist number six this winter, particularly when we're touring the subcontinent and uh, Ben Folks comes in. Um, interestingly, got 150 in the county championship game that he was released to play in during this test match. 
uh, question marks about how well he plays pace, but that's not going to be massively an issue in uh, in Sri Lanka. So, you know, does he come into the side at seven um, as keeper and Butler as a batter at six? So, uh, Binksy, is Joss Butler ahead uh, in terms of plus minus in the series? Yeah, look, it's an interesting question. I think if I'm being harsh, you know, he broke even in that game, you know, having dropped Sham Masood um, and then scoring 150. I think he's probably up on the summer because he's answered some of the critics from a batting perspective and he's shown that he can keep in patches. Um, and look, let's not be too critical here. Rizwan has missed a couple of chances and, and everyone's saying he's kept brilliantly. Dyrich honestly looked like he'd never kept wicket before at points <laughs> in that series. It's a tough place to keep wicket when the ball is wobbling after it's um, after it's pitched. But I, I just don't see that if I go back to Matt Pryor, who I always used to be really, really scathing of as a as a keeper, and he turned himself into a very, very competent test match wicket keeper and a guy that averaged over 40 with the bat. Even Johnny Bairstow, who was pretty poor and went away and worked really, really hard and was gutted to get the gloves taken off him, I just don't see that Butler's actually improved his test match keeping that much and he's had a really long opportunity to do it. So I know that's a long answer to your question is whether he's in, in credit or not. I'd say he's just in credit um, when you look at the role that we're asking him to to perform. And even with these scores, his test average is still in the early early 30s rather than where we'd want it to be, which is the, you know, the late 30s and early 40s. You guys will know better, better than me, but does it, I mean, a wicketkeeper sets the tone in terms of the standards in the field, right? And England's slip catching has been poor this summer. How much of that is not directly attributable, but perhaps in part attributable to some of the body language and some of the, the way Butler has carried and kind of looked under pressure. He looked a man under pressure out in the field for England, as opposed to when he had the bat in his hand, he looked really, really comfortable. How much of that, that poor slip catching, and it was pretty, pretty poor for England this summer, how much of that is is taken in terms of the, the attitude and the tone from the way Butler has, has held the gloves, do you think? You've got to have confidence in your keeper, right? And I don't think they have. The other thing I would say is the, the cordon's not been consistent. Joe Root missed a game for the birth of his daughter. Ben Stokes has obviously been missing. If you, you know, if you're missing two guys that are regularly in the cordon, Burns, honestly, why he's not fielding at fine leg, I'm not entirely sure. He doesn't look like he's going to catch one. But, you know, I think a good cordon has to spend some time together and understand, you know, the strengths of the guy that's standing next to them. You know, is my second slip the kind of guy where he's going to go across me and he's going to pouch stuff and I can be a little bit deeper or a little bit wider? Um, so I think when when you're struggling as a keeper, you, you're not tending to focus too much on your cordon. You're focusing on yourself. Um, and, and that has a massive knock on effect to the confidence of the cordon, I think. I think it's I think it's a bit harsh to um, put that on on Joss Butler. You're, you're a Test cricketer, especially some of those. I'm not gonna I don't want to single out uh, Burn, but Burns, but his ones were fairly fairly uh, standard slip catches. You've got to be taking those, and you're a Test cricketer. You can't say that you're you're not confident in your keeper, so you're not catching them. But uh, I understand what you're saying. But uh, you know you've got to take those catches if you want to win win matches, Baldy. I understand. 
and before so before we move on to some of the rules and, and light and playing conditions sort of stuff are there any other players we want to touch on yeah lippy i want to give you the opportunity to talk about dom bess um i'm probably gonna go not the way that you would hope uh, as an off spinner as seam attack league spin yeah well you know as seam attack's <laughs> been really really impressive throughout the course of this summer um probably with the exception of archer who's let's be honest, struggled in terms of his numbers. I don't think he's necessarily been used in the right way. I don't think he's ne- necessarily known exactly what his role is. Um, and returns of, you know, four wickets at 50 in that West Indies series and four at 40, including being wicketless in the two games he's played in this Pakistan series, aren't what he would have expected, I don't think. But my main concern, particularly going away to Sri Lanka, hopefully, um, this winter, is the spin department. You know, Bess has been given an extended run, but he's got eight wickets in six test matches when visiting spinners have got 25 wickets between them. So that's got to be a worry for this England team because particularly in this last game, he wasn't providing the control that you'd want him to provide. You know, he wasn't going for two and a half and and allowing us to really rotate the seamers. Um, But he also wasn't proving too threatful if threatful is a word so that, that you know that's got to be a you know that's got to be a concern threatening i think is the, the thing i was looking for so yeah look i think that that's got to be you know a concern for england going going overseas this winter i don't think you're wrong but to me i just don't need i don't see why you wouldn't persevere with them a little bit longer it's it's been a really disrupted sort of particularly this Pakistan series, I mean, you improve as a spinner by bowling overs. I think, you know, some of the guys that we've had on recently kind of talked about that, Jeet and Patel especially, I think. And, you know, that that's just the reality as a, as a spinner. You need overs under your belt. The guy's only 23. He can, he can definitely spin the ball. And, yeah, I, I'd be sticking with him. I, I think it would be short-sighted to kind of throw in another person and then get, you know, Unless you've got someone absolutely banging down the door, it, I'd be sticking with him. I think it, it'd be a bad move to, to let him go. Yeah, look, I think it's difficult to be hypercritical of Dom Bess if he played in two test matches in this summer that he didn't bowl on over. Um, you're certainly right, Stuart, that he, he needs to bowl more to be more effective. I totally take Adam's point that when he did bowl, he wasn't particularly effective. But I think the prevailing conditions more suited England's seam attack than suited Dom Bess, which meant that he bowled in in limited sort of fits and starts and didn't really get a chance to bowl for an extended period of time. You're right, though, Adam, in that he didn't control one end to allow England seamers to rotate down the other end, which would be the, the backup role for a spinner to hold. But he's going to learn that. I think the thing that he probably didn't do enough of is try and use the crease to create a better angle to attack the batsman occasionally he was a little too straight and allowed the Pakistan batsmen to play him off their stumps rather than to try and get outside off stump and and try and create either a little bit of angle, maybe not so much with drift because we didn't see a lot of drift with Dom Bess, but just with using the crease and and playing with things like that to be able to to create more doubt in the batsman's mind and try and get them playing through the offside more rather than sort of through the leg side. And that would be the only criticism I would level at Dom Bess. I think he'd probably do a better job in Sri Lanka and England will really need him to. Yeah, he'll also have another spinner bowling with him over there as well. Um, for mine, that'll be Moen Ali coming back into the side, I think. Um, and I, look, I think that's going to help him. I know it's two off spinners, but um, Sri Lanka do have a lot of left-handers, so I think that could be 
pretty telling. Um, but I think he's going to learn a lot from, you know, from bowling with a proven test match spinner at the other end. And for me, that is Moeen. And maybe having a decent keeper at the other end. Well, yeah, look, that's a, you know, that's a, fa- <laughs> you know, that's a factor, absolutely a factor um, as well. What else do we want to talk about in this test series? It's, you know, got some mentions for the weather and the regulations again. My, my main uh, query, it's really a query about the, the playing conditions. So I was always a fan of, you know, the, the light being offered to the batsman, but obviously that's changed and changed a while ago. But I found it interesting that they had such different interpretations of when to go off for light in the different test matches. Like that that doesn't seem seem right to me. Does anyone have any insight on that? Yeah, well, that was, that was a perplexing one because I think in the third test, they played under conditions that were a lot more dull and gloomy. And I think we saw on the evening of the third day, perhaps, when those slip catches all went down, that it was quite dull. It was very difficult to see. And that's not an excuse for the slips catchers missing those chances. But absolutely, they played in more deteriorating lights than we would have otherwise seen them play, perhaps under ordinary circumstances. I think the thing that was a positive in that in the third test, the playing conditions were changed in that they were able to start half an hour earlier as well as finishing later to make up more time for lost play, which I think was a really sensible decision from whoever it was that was that was in charge of that, you know, that playing condition to change for the third test. I don't think, Adam, there's particularly an issue with, with starting half an hour early in England. I know there's talk of like dew being on the ground and, and things like that, but I don't think there's really an issue if there's rain around and you're losing time to to either bad light or or weather that starting half an hour earlier is that big an issue? Yeah, look, I think you'd probably get batters saying, yeah, absolutely, it's going to nip around more between half 10 and 11 than 11 and 11.30. But realistically, I don't think it's a big, big difference. I, I think the key thing is actually the ICC need to take a very, very hard look at giving a little bit more common sense within these plane regulations. At, at the end of the day, um, as long as it's, you know, a set of regulations that are able to be followed, I don't see why we need a set lunch and tea break um, when the players, particularly when they're off for um, any kind of stoppage in play, you know, they can hydrate, they can have their, you know, quinoa salad or, what you know, whatever they need to get the right micro and macro nutrients into their body to, you know, to, to allow them to perform at their full potential they can do that so i think you've got to take the pay in public and the tv audience and it's very frustrating to see a situation where you could be out there even for 15 or 20 minutes but you've called a 40 minute break for lunch and 20 minutes of playable conditions are taken up by a break that didn't need to be the case so that's the thing where those regs need to be redrafted for me um it's difficult to comment on the actual lights because, you know, the TV cameras don't necessarily show the full picture as we know. But again, we, we're showing so much of the goings on in a game. Why can't we have a standard light meter reading, even if it needs to be done on a ground by ground basis that's displayed on the scoreboard and, display, you know, displayed to the TV audience so that they know what's going on? And, you know, rather than I oh, were coming off the light, you can see that it's dropped to, you know, whatever the lumens rating is. I think, you know, a bit more transparency, um, ironically, would be the would be the best option here. The best thing that's potentially come out of this is that they might start to look at 
and be a bit more flexible. The fact that they were the willing to, I guess, look at those break uh, the, you know, starting early, the break times is the great point that you make there, Binksy. I think, and and they really do need to look at that, and and they need to be thinking we need to get as much cricket as possible, and and there's no reason why any of those things have to happen. So hopefully this is sort of as much as it's been kind of a frustrating thing to talk about. Hopefully it's sort of the first step in them actually considering whether all of those things can change and be flexible in the future. Yeah, that's actually a, a gem of an idea there, Binksy. I think we should start a petition. Um, you just need to play cricket. You know, call breaks when you need to call breaks, but there's no sense in having an hour's rain and then playing for 40 minutes and then going off for 40 minutes. doesn't make well, sense. Matt, mate, they have a drinks break on the hour, but the 12th man's on the pitch every over anyway, so I, I just, I just don't, yeah, look, don't even get me started on that. So that just about wraps up this episode of the Top Order podcast. Please make sure you reach back into the feed, though. We've got a couple of gems coming up for you and that have recently dropped into the Top Order podcast feed. Speedster Lockie Ferguson talks all things New Zealand cricket as well as his fast bowling app, Machine Road. We also got the pleasure of spending around about an hour and 15 minutes with Australian legend Michael Hussey. Um, our Australian legend Michael Baldwin was beside himself during the course of that interview and that drops into the feed as well so please go and take a listen we've also got Wasim Khan we've got Colin Miller and a whole host of other top name stars in the back catalogue and heaps and heaps of stuff coming up as well so please give a listen to the Top Order podcast feed follow us on social media we're getting our Instagram groove together at Top Order Pod, at Top Order Pod on Twitter and Facebook, and you'll find our website www.thetoporderpodcast.com. But that's it for now, fellas. Hopefully, we're in the same room recording next time. It definitely will help with a little bit of the repartee and banter, no doubt. Already looking forward to seeing all your Australian shirts hanging on your, the wall and uh, Jack the Cockatoo on next week's Top Order Podcast when we're back out of lockdown. Thanks for listening.